you're listening to All the Beautiful Things. There's a content warning for this week's episode as it deals with war and ethnic violence. If that is something that is upsetting to you, please take care while listening. How do we remember? At our best, we build monuments, we wear poppies, we make pilgrimages, we take moments of silence, and we tell stories. For me, the stories I hold on to are the ones that touch me in ways that both challenge and reinforce my ideas of what it means to be human. Stories of joy and stories of miseries that color our every moment of existence. I'm going to tell you a story. A story about love. And I'm going to tell you a story about war. It's a story without a happy ending. But in my telling, and in your listening, it becomes an act of remembrance. And although it can be painful, remembrance is a beautiful thing. If you took a trip to Sarajevo in 1984, you would find yourself in a very cosmopolitan city. A city with a skyline dotted with a mix of communist-era high-rise apartment blocks, church bell towers, and mosque minarets. Sarajevo was a melting pot of Catholics, Muslims, Christians, Serbs, and Croats. It was a place that had tried to set aside the old hatreds and differences that had plagued the Balkans for centuries in order to build a city open to everyone. Sarajevo was the capital of Bosnia-Herzegovina, a region within the Socialist Federation of Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia itself was a nation created in the aftermath of the downfall of empires following the First World War, and then held together by the pure will and vision of one man, communist leader Marshal Tito, after the destruction of the Second World War. The history of this region is long and complicated. But one constant thread throughout the centuries was the tension between the many ethnic groups and religions that lived there. Because before it was Yugoslavia, it was the powder keg of Europe. The Balkans, as the region is also known, has always been on the verge of explosion. Before World War I, Austro-Hungarian Emperor Franz Joseph was often told that they would be the downfall of his empire. And it was the Bosnian Serb and Slavic nationalist Gravilo Princip who, in the name of Slavic independence from the empire, assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo, the spark that was the fuse to the First World War. After World War I, the Austro-Hungarian Empire fell, and in 1941, the region now known as the Kingdom of Yugoslavia was invaded by the Germans and disintegrated into ethnic and religious factions, as well as pro-fascist and anti-fascist alliances. Following the war, the partisan hero Marshal Tito became leader, and in order to rebuild that nation, outlawed all expressions of nationalism. Everyone now was a Yugoslav. The policy was called brotherhood and unity, and the policy worked. And then, in 1980, Tito died. Four years after the death of Yugoslav President Joseph Tito, 
Sarajevo was hosting the Winter Olympics, an event that would focus the eyes of the world on Bosnia-Herzegovina and Yugoslavia. And as that winter of 1983 turned to 1984, two teenagers shared a kiss, their first kiss, at a New Year's Eve party. Bosko Brevich was 15, and Edmir Ismich was 16. He was a Serb, and she was a Muslim. Later, the Western press would dub them the Romeo and Juliet of Sarajevo, but that implies that their love was forbidden, and it wasn't. At that time, 40% of all marriages in the city were mixed. Their love story was not out of the ordinary. It was what Sarajevo was. Serbs, Muslims, Christians, Croats all worked and lived in love together. Edmira herself had Serbian cousins. In Sarajevo, at least, everyone was Bosnian, everyone was a Yugoslav. The divides would come later from the outside, and they would push in on the city hard, as the citizens of Sarajevo tried to stand firm against hatred and violence. But in the late 1980s, Boshko and Edmira were just two teenagers in love. Admira was the fearless rebel girl who loved motorcycles and to fix cars, and Boshko, the charming and friendly practical joker who was always quick with a smile. As their relationship progressed and their love grew, both families came to see each child as part of their own family. For Admira's younger sister, Boshko became the big brother she never had, but their own family histories could bear witness to the destructive forces of nationalism and war which wreaked havoc following the German invasion and occupation of World War II. In Bosnia, Edmira's Muslim grandfather and great-uncles had fought not only the Germans, but Serbian nationalists as members of the partisan forces. Next door in Croatia, pro-Hitler fascists rounded up Serbs for extermination. Boschko's grandmother was living in Croatia when her husband was called down to the police station. She never saw him again. He was one of half a million Serbs killed by Croatian fascists allied with the Nazis. 1986 was a year of loss and transition for both Boschko and Edmira. In the spring of that year, they graduated from high school. And like all teenagers all over the world, they love music and movies, nights out, laughing and chatting with friends, going to the beach and dreaming about the future. But that summer, Boschko's father died of a heart attack. Adding to the emotional upheaval, in Yugoslavia, military service was compulsory and the conscription age was 18. Boschko was 18. He was sent to an officer training school in Serbia, and for the first time, he and Edmira were separated. Dear Admira, every night when I go to bed, I can't sleep because I am thinking of you. My love, you are the only happiness I have. My dearest Boschko, Sarajevo at night is the most beautiful thing in the world. I guess I could live somewhere else, but only if I must, or if I am forced to. Only just a little bit of time is left until we are together. After that, absolutely nothing will separate us. And after nearly a year apart, they were reunited. But as these two looked forward to a bright future in their beloved city of Sarajevo, the swell of nationalism, so successfully kept at bay by unity and brotherhood, was beginning to overwhelm the fragile cohesion of the Yugoslav Federation. It started in Kosovo. 
when the Serb minority rose up against the Albanian majority and Albanian control of the local Communist Party. This uprising was exploited and used to push a Serb nationalist agenda, as Serbia, the largest republic within Yugoslavia, asserted influence and control over the socialist autonomous provinces of Kosovo and its neighbor, Vojvodina. On June 28, 1989, half a million Serbs gathered to celebrate the 600-year anniversary of the defeat of the Serbian King Lazar at the hands of Muslim forces. It was here that the militant nationalist Serbian leader Slobodan Milosevic gave a speech calling for Serbian unity and Serbian nationalism above all else, above the unity and brotherhood of Yugoslavia. War first came to Slovenia when the Slovenes left the party council and refused to bend to Serbian will. Then war came to Croatia, as Croatian Serbs battled to keep Croatia from declaring independence from Serbian control of what was left of Yugoslavia. And, for the second time in her life, war forced Boschko's grandmother to leave Croatia. Before she left everything to move to Canada, she pleaded with her daughter Rada, Boschko's mother, to get out of Sarajevo. As the world and their nation disintegrated around them, 100,000 Bosnians took to the streets, Muslims, Serbs, Croats, all urging for Bosnian independence and a multi-ethnic state. They hoped to hold on to the world they had built, a society open and accepting, and to avoid the nationalism that had consumed the republics around them. As the marchers gathered in front of the parliament building and on the Verbania Bridge, Bosnian Serb snipers opened fire. Two women were killed on the bridge, and the city was soon under siege. Meanwhile, the war in Bosnia continued, the Bosnian Serbs again shelling the supposedly safe areas of Bihać, Srebrenica, Gorazde and Sarajevo. The Bosnian capital is again a city under siege. Gone is the electricity, the gas and domestic water supplies. People are forced to travel for miles to collect what precious water they can find. The bakery's running out of flour and bread's been rationed to one-third of a loaf per person every two days. Bashko was torn. He could not go into the Bosnian army, now dominated by Muslims, and shoot at Serbs. And he would not join the Serbs and shoot down into his beloved city. He could not help destroy Sarajevo. And most importantly, Admira was in Sarajevo. And as other Serbs fled Bosnia, Bashko, who was against the war, stayed in the city. But as the war intensified, being a Serb in Sarajevo became a precarious situation. Bands of militant Muslims intent on revenge threatened the remaining Serbian population with violence and death. And then there were the snipers, indiscriminate and incentivized by the 500 German mark bounty on the head of anybody in Sarajevo. They struck at random. The Serb snipers are active and Sarajevans are running for their lives, although the UN is managing to provide some cover. This is the latest primitive but effective anti-sniping device deployed by the UN, an armoured personnel carrier being used to shield pedestrians. Tonight there was no easing off on the siege as the mortars and guns opened up again. Terry Lloyd, News at 10, Sarajevo. 
Along with the terror of sniper attacks, there was also the shelling. Every day, up to 1,000 shells rained down on the city from the surpositions above, and each day, Boshko or Admira would make the trip across this war-torn town to see each other. Once, Boshko's mother asked Admira, Can this war separate you from Boshko? Admira answered, Only bullets can. Once, on her cross-city trip to Boshko's, a shell exploded at a bakery just as Admira approached. She could not look at the blood. She could not look at the bodies. Once, a shell exploded in the kitchen of Boshko's family's apartment. Boshko and his friend had just left the kitchen moments earlier. Following that shell explosion, Boshko and his mother moved to another apartment. Two weeks later, it was completely destroyed. At Boshko's insistence, his mother left. She was urged by Admira's father to come live with them, but she feared the family would face repercussions in the neighborhood because she was a Serb. The distance between Boshko's apartment and Admira's parents' house was five miles. The two began to fear being cut off from each other, so they moved in together. They became surrogate caregivers for Admira's war orphaned cousins, and as the siege of the city went on and on, and as citizens turned to weeds to stave off starvation, they shared their bread with their neighbors. But as the situation became nearly untenable, Boshko and his friend Misha, with the approval of Cello, a longtime family friend and leader of the most powerful and influential Sarajevo gang, began to work on the black market, dealing in stolen petrol and diesel. But Misha wanted out of Sarajevo. In April 1993, Misha drove Boshko and Itmira to Cello's wedding. After dropping them off, he got in the car and he drove out of the city to Serbian-controlled Bosnia with a gun, a radio, and the secret military codes from his unit in the Bosnian army. Suddenly, Boshko was in a deadly position. Misha had been commander of Kosovo Hill, and he deserted. He'd also been in business and close friends with Boshko. Both were Serbs. So Boshko took the brunt of the punishment for Misha's defection. He was physically attacked, and without Cello's protection, he would have been killed. Then came the call ordering Boshko to report to the police within 72 hours. Serbs were often tortured or disappeared after turning up at the police station. Boshko knew his own grandfather during World War II had never been seen again after being summoned to the police station. Both Boshko and Itmira knew it was time to leave Sarajevo. The business of Sarajevo is survival. Its people have neither hope of escape, nor thought of surrender. We're all united here to, to fight for the freedom of our state. And even the children in the ground school know what's going on here. After today's attack, survivors scrambled to get on board the one and only bus from the city center. Any lull in the bombardment is a short one. In previous times, there's always been some hope of mediation. Either the European Community Observers were here or the United Nations. Now the EC Observers have gone away and the UN has suspended most activity until 48 hours pass without any fighting. 48 hours, there's hardly five minutes here. 
Martin Bell, BBC News, Sarajevo. Taking Nedmira into Serb territory, however, was also a dangerous option. Serbs have been using rape as a way to terrorize the Muslim population. The Serb military had set up rape camps, and the overwhelming majority of the victims were Bosnian Muslim women. For Admira to leave Muslim-controlled Sarajevo with Bosco for Serb territory presented a new threat in what was becoming an impossible situation. Cello, who had arranged Bosco's mother's escape from the city, set up the escape for Bosco and Admira. But escape involved crossing the no-man's land of the front line, getting all sides to cease fire at an agreed-upon time, as well as the exchange of prisoners, or favors. On May 13th, Edmira celebrated her 25th birthday. Boshko asked, Do we have cake? Edmira answered, We have fruit cake. Boshko took a bite. Where's the fruit? He laughed. Edmira said, Fruit will be next year. On May 19th, they made their escape. Cello had made arrangements with the instructions to wait until dark. It was impossible for him to make a deal with all the various factions to cease fire. They needed the cover of the night to make it safely to the other side. But at five o'clock that afternoon, a man and a woman were spotted walking across no man's land with bags. The man walked a few feet in front of the woman, who skipped lightly behind him. Then. A sniper's bullet landed in front of their legs. Then there was the sound of gunfire and the man fell. He died instantly. Then the girl fell, screaming. She crawled across the pavement to the man and wrapped her arms around him. Then she went still. She was a Muslim. He was an Eastern Orthodox Serb. Childhood sweethearts from opposite sides of the ethnic-religious divide. They were just 25. They were walking across this bridge. It was incredibly dangerous, right between the two front lines. And then a shot rang out. Boschko fell dead to the ground, killed by a sniper's bullet. Then another shot. Nadmira was hit. Instead of crawling away, she moved over to her lover, put her arm around him and died there. For eight days, no one dared get their bodies. Eventually, Serb soldiers took them to a nearby barracks for burial. Admira's Muslim parents couldn't cross the front line. Only Boschko's Serb mother could get there. The Yugoslav Wars were barely 30 years ago. The siege of Sarajevo lasted 1,335 days, and that was the longest siege in modern history. It left over 13,000 people dead. The genocide that occurred, after we all promised never again, took the lives of another 20 to 30,000 people. And yet, this war so easily fell out of our collective memory. Remembering Boschko and Admira is a reminder that civilization is held together by a very thin thread. And here's a postscript. Reuters reporter Kurt Shork, who'd been reporting from the Bosnian war zone, filed the original report about the two lovers dead on the Verbania Bridge on May 23, 1993. That story, Romeo and Juliet in Sarajevo, was picked up and reported on around the world, 
bringing the human tragedy of the war front and center. Shork would go on to report from other conflict zones before being killed in an ambush in war-torn Sierra Leone in 2000. Shork's body was cremated. Per his wishes, half of his ashes were buried next to his mother in his hometown of Washington, D.C. The other half? They lay buried at the foot of the grave of Boshko and Admira. Hey friends, this was a heavy episode. Heavy to remember, heavy to research, and to write. I barely scratched the surface of the history of the Yugoslav Wars. If you want to know more, check out the playlist for this episode on atbtpodcast.com. There, you'll find links to news broadcasts, documentaries, and historical overviews. I also recommend Ms. Shiglini's book, The Fall of Yugoslavia, a definitive source on the subject, and award-winning 1994 frontline documentary, Romeo and Juliet in Sarajevo, which was an invaluable source for this episode. I'll see you next time. You've been listening to All the Beautiful Things. This episode was written and produced by me, Sydney Wilson, with music by Cool Cat Music. You can also follow me on Instagram at Lady Sydney B. So, until next time, keep looking for those beautiful things. <laughs>